Hey, this is Pastor Ricky Ortiz at MetaChurch, and I just wanted to take a moment to say thank you for tuning into our podcast and supporting our ministry. If you'd like to learn more about MetaChurch, you can visit us online at meta.church, and we're praying this message inspires you and encourages you to pursue your relationship with Jesus. In the fifth part of what is a series we call New, a teaching series that began on Easter Sunday. And the whole premise of the series is everything that came out of the resurrection. That if Easter is the day we celebrate uh, the resurrection, the, the day that Jesus rose from the grave, then why does that day or that moment in history have such significant bearing on the rest of the world 2,000 plus years later? Why do we celebrate it? Why does it mean something? Why does it matter to, to what we do or who we are or how we engage the world today? And, and as we wrap up, uh, this series. I actually want to kind of go back to week one. If you're a part of week one, then you might remember that I said uh, we all, I think when I introduced this series, I said, I think we all like the idea of new. We just don't always like the process of new. We love the idea of embracing something new, receiving something new, taking on something new. We just don't always like the process that new requires to, to kind of let go of something old. But in general, we love new. We love something new. And I think one of the things that we love about new is that, you know, new sounds good, it feels good, it looks good, it smells nice, uh, it's shiny. There's all these things about new that are attractive. But one of the pitfalls of new is that, or something new, is that we can fall in love with it just because it's new, but not necessarily because it's better. And so we just say, oh, it's new. It doesn't necessarily improve anything. It doesn't make things better. It doesn't change things. But it's new, so I like it. And, and, and that can be one of the dangers of something new. Because the truth is, who cares if it's new or old? If it's not better, what value does it really have? Right? Does that make sense? I'll give you kind of a simple example. We have a 2010 Toyota Highlander uh, here, and we paid it off so we don't owe anything on it. Um, but it's a 2010 Highlander. It's a nice car works, it functions, it operates. But the point and the primary reason why we have this car is to get not just from point A to point B, but literally it's our church storage unit. So we put stuff in the back of our car and then we park it all week and then we bring it back on Sunday, load stuff into it, load stuff out of it. It's our, that's our primary function. Now the car itself is nine years old. If I wanted to go get a new Toyota Highlander, it's going to run me something north of 40 grand, maybe $45,000. And it's going to do essentially the same thing my old car does except maybe it has like Bluetooth and a backup camera. And, and, and that's about it. That's going to be the major difference is maybe it gets one mile per gallon better. Maybe it gets a few miles per gallon better. That, that's about it. So really to get something new, to invest in a new Highlander, it's not going to be doing anything more different or more significant than my old one does. So really financially, practically speaking, it doesn't make sense for our family to go get something new because the old works just fine. Does that make sense? And then these are true, like we know these things, whether it's a car or other experiences or other situations in our lives, right? Like think about your cell phone. You want to get a new phone. And you realize that there's a new phone option available to you because it's also not just new, but it's better. Maybe you've been on Android. And, and maybe the Android is the problem. You're like, oh, but you know what? I learned about this thing called an iPhone. <laughs> and the iPhone is so much better. Not only does it like, look better, function better, but I get blue text messages instead of the green ones, and people won't judge me. I won't have, you know, like, like they won't like, exclude me from group text. You know, all the stuff that happens because you were stuck in the old. And so you upgrade to the new, and you're like, my life has changed. It's so much better, right? You know what I'm talking about? Most people here are iPhone users. That means Jesus loves you. And those that are Android, Jesus still loves you. He's just working on you. It's taking a little bit of time. But whether it's an iPhone or maybe it's not an iPhone or a new phone necessarily, maybe it's like a new job versus an old job, right? 
the pay is better, the benefits, the compensation, the, the opportunities the, in the new job, your old job could be fine. It could pay the bills, it could get you what you want, it could take you where you need to be, but a new job could present better opportunities, better experiences, or, or better, uh, just a, a way of life that maybe is more accommodating or more friendly to who you are and where you're at. And so you go for a new job or a new apartment versus an old apartment, right? It's, it fits within the budget, it's more economical, it's in a nicer place, whatever it is. So we, we look at these kind of things and we make that type of assessment all the time. Is the new gonna be better? Because functionally and operationally speaking, in our minds and in our lives, new has to equal better, right? It's not just good enough for something new to be new, it needs to be better. And if we wanna embrace something, if we wanna take hold of something, if we wanna accept something into our lives or receive it into our lives, then we've gotta trust that that new thing is gonna be better than the old thing that we're giving up or the old thing we're letting go of. And, and I think one of the things that we, we don't necessarily account for, but what is very true in every sense of the way is that this same rationale applies to how we receive messages here in church, even this series. Like, I'm no fool. I realize that just because I put the new title doesn't mean that everyone's like, oh yeah, it's new, so it's gotta be better. Every single week we come in and we're <laughs> expecting that maybe or hoping that it's gonna be better, but there's a part of us that wants to know for sure, is this going to be better? And it's not just this series, but I believe that's also how we look at the things of God and the ways of Jesus and, and, and what he's offering and the new that Jesus offers. I think we're making constant decisions and evaluations on, is this new better than my current or better than my old? And, 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 and we're kind of hardwired to, to think or operate in this way. And it's not, like I said, it's not a few of us, but it's all of us. Because we all want to know what difference does this make in my life? Like, how does this change my experiences? Not just how does it change it, but how does it make it better? How, does, how, how do I take this new and embrace it and live it, but what does it do for my world and the world around me? Can this new actually make something better? And, and, and if we're really, really honest, I think one of the things that we struggle with in, in kind of church communities is that we struggle to believe and embrace the new because we don't necessarily see the direct correlations to better or we don't see the direct correlations to better in the immediate. And if that better is prolonged, if that better is going to take a while, if that better seems kind of like it's, it's put off for a period of time, it's hard for us to say, yes, the new is absolutely better, and so I'm going to commit to it, I'm going to jump into it, and I'm going to fully embrace it. And, and that's a struggle for each and every one of us, myself included. And I think this is part of the reason why the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, decided to write about Jesus' life. I think this is part of the reason why they wanted to kind of express and, and, and jot down and, and account for who Jesus was, what he did, what he offered, because there was skepticism or there was doubt or there was concern of, is this new actually going to be better? Yes, he resurrected. Yes, he came back from the grave. But how much better is what Jesus offers compared to my current present reality? In fact, John maybe Jesus' closest friend, would write this himself, and this is the way he would put it in John chapter 20, his letter, toward the end of his letter, toward the end of his book, this is what he writes. In verse 30 and 31, he says, the disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the one record, ones recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. You see, John wrote in part so that his audience, so that his readers, so that his listeners would believe in something and continue in that something. 
It wasn't just, hey, I want you to believe in this and then boom, it's over. It's I want you to believe in this and continue in this new life that Jesus offers. And so he wrote, he expounded on this and he had ideas, he had stories, he had miracles, he had signs that he pointed to. But he said, all of this is written so that you could fully embrace the new that Jesus has. Because John understood it wasn't just new that Jesus was offering, but it was better as well. And so he wanted his audience to know that this new wasn't just new, this new was better because there were plenty of people in Jesus' day who were living and proclaiming to offer something new who, like most every other people or most of Jesus' contemporaries, ended up dead and offered nothing better. So it wasn't uncommon to hear about something new. It was uncommon to experience something better. And what John was, illum- or John was pointing to was that Jesus, the new Jesus offered and the new Jesus talked about is better than the old people knew about. And so he wanted people to understand this. He wanted people to take hold of this. And if we look back over the last 2,000 years, if you look back over the course of history, what you would find is that the new Jesus offered actually was better. It actually improved their world, but it didn't just change their world. It changed our world. And it changed the way we live, it changed the way we engage, and it changed how the world operates. And I'm not, that's no exaggeration. I'm not lying to you, and I'm not making it up. I'll prove it to you in just a second. But before I do, here's what I want you to know. As the pastor of Meta Church, as, as, as the leader of this community, what, what I pray for and what I believe is that the new Jesus offered not only takes hold or takes root in our lives, but it, it produces something better in our worlds and the world around us. Not just for today, not just for tomorrow, not just for next year, but for generations to come. Because that's who God is. Even as we say, he does it again, that he'll do it again. He'll take what he once used, he'll multiply it and extrapolate it over millennia so that people in some foreign distant country, in some foreign distant space and time will be impacted by the good news of Jesus and their lives will be better for it because a group of people took hold of new and lived it out for the rest of their lives. And my prayer in my heart, it's not just because meta is unique or meta is special or whatever, but that there's a wave, an uprising of Christians, of believers, of followers of Jesus who are embracing the new here in New York City, here on this part of the city, other parts of this country, other parts of this world who are saying, this is what Jesus offers and I am committed to embracing it and living in it and we are going to transform the way the world is lived and experienced and engaged for generations to come. And that's what God does. That's who God is. And what I want to do kind of for the rest of this morning is I want to kind of give you uh, maybe uh, proofs, if you will, or, or evidences. I'm going to use the word distinctives in that they're distinct to Jesus and the gospel. That these four things, they're all things we know. Yet these four things originated in the person of Jesus, of Jesus and they were experienced and engaged through all, by all of us because of the new that he offers. And, and so the starting point, the first place that I'm going to begin, is with the word dignity. Dignity. Now, if you type dignity into a Google search, what you'll find is that approximately 127 million search populations will be discovered in about 0.49 seconds, according to Google. And so dignity is a big deal. Dignity is searched for, it's written about, it's discussed about, it's talked about at least 127 million times that Google can account for. If you take it a step further and you type in the phrase, dignity as a human, or as a human right, excuse me, dignity as a human right, what you'll find is that there are actually 108 million search results that populate with that caption or with that expression. 108 million times dignity as a human right is expressed, is accounted for, is written about, is discussed. 
And, 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 and I think what we would agree on, I don't know everyone, so I can't speak for everyone, but I'm going to assume, I'm going to be a generous person here, and I'm going to assume generously that each and every one of us agrees dignity is a human right, at least at the point of birth. Now, we may differ and, and, and disagree about if or where dignity can be lost, but when a person is born, doesn't matter who they are, where they're from, what situation they were born into, what part of the planet they live in, that when a person is born, dignity is an inherent right. I think most of us would agree with that, right? I see like three people nodding yes. I'm like, oh God, you need to start praying, laying hands on people. Like, dignity is an inherent right. And now this is interesting because we in this room would agree. I'm assuming those who listen online would agree as well. But, but here's the kind of captivating thing or the fascinating thing about this. In Jesus' day, this was not the case. Dignity was not an inherent right. See, in Jesus' day, there was a social hierarchy, and this hierarchy determined or designated who was benefit or who would actually receive dignity. And the hierarchy went something like this. At the top, you had gods. Beneath the gods, you had like the king or the Caesar, depending on the empire or the rule. Underneath the kings or the Caesars, you had like the aristocrats, the politicians, maybe the state or, or political, like kind of religious uh, priest. Underneath them, you would have merchants, artisans, craftspeople. Beneath them, five tiers down, were peasants and slaves. Then on the bottom of the rung, six tiers down, were women and children. Six tiers down, okay? And of those six tiers, the only ones that were reserved or dignity was reserved for, guaranteed, without question, were the gods and the king. And in some societies, maybe the aristocrats, maybe the politicians, maybe the priests. So three tiers down the ladder, that's it. That's, that's who deserved dignity, Nobody else, not the merchants, not the craftspeople, not the peasants, not the slaves, and definitely not the women, and definitely not the children. Yet it was into this world that Jesus was born. Now, how are you born? As a child. You're not born as an adult. So Jesus was born, duh, shocker, if you didn't know, you're born as a child. And Jesus was born into this world as a child on the bottom of the totem pole. Zero dignity. Why? Because children were liabilities. They were dependents. They needed someone else or something else from someone else. And he was born the child of a carpenter, a craftsperson. So a few tiers higher, but still not worthy of dignity. And, and, and then you think about Jesus' life. It wasn't just how he was born, but it was how he was died. It wasn't just how he entered this world, but it was how he exited this world. Hanging upon a cross, naked, mocked, ridiculed. You see, Jesus himself had no dignity Jesus himself was given no dignity at his birth, and he left this earth with no dignity. But it wasn't his birth nor his death that actually gives us or teaches us about dignity. It was the way he, everything he did in between the two. It was the way he lived his life. It was the way he empowered and invited children to come. You ever read that story here, that story where, where the disciples, his closest followers, are trying to push kids out of Jesus' way? And Jesus says, no, 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 bring them to me. That wasn't common in his society. The disciples weren't mean or jerks. They were just doing what everyone does, which is pushing away the least dignified people out of the picture. It wasn't just the kids, though. It was how he welcomed and invited women and how, let's be really honest and transparent, how he talked to women, how he spoke to them, the fact that he spoke to them, the fact that he was willing to talk to them, the fact that when someone would take a woman and throw her down in shame and guilt at his feet, Jesus would get down on her level and lift her up and dignify her through his conversation, through his engagement with her, that he wouldn't just love her and serve her, but that he would invite her to join him and to serve with him in his mission of proclaiming the gospel to an entire region. 
You see, it wasn't just what Jesus did. It wasn't just how Jesus talked about it. It was the fact that he said, listen, every person needs this. Every person deserves this. Every person should receive this. And it was so impactful. It was so profound and so revolutionary that James, the brother of Jesus, okay, now mind you, you got to know, he's the brother of Jesus, yet he didn't believe in Jesus while Jesus was alive. He didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He didn't trust that Jesus was Lord until after the resurrection, But James became an early church father, and this is what James would write talking about women and children. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Here is someone who wouldn't even embrace the message of his own brother during his lifetime. And then he recognizes and sees, no, every person deserves dignity. Every person is worthy of being loved. Every person is worthy of being respected. Every person is worthy of being cared for. Every person is worthy of being spoken to. Every person is worthy of being acknowledged. See, we all have this desire, don't we? We all want to be seen, heard, and understood. We all have that feeling inside of us that says, man, someone, if someone would just recognize me in my struggle, if someone would just speak to me in my trouble, if someone would just acknowledge the fact that I'm here, that I'm breathing, that I'm a person, you know, you could talk to me. You don't have to talk through me. And then if we could just have that, where did that come from? Jesus is the one that instilled it. Jesus is the one that gave it. Jesus is the one that says, listen, every person is worthy of this. And because Jesus is the one that gave it, no one else can take it away. So bad. Dignity is something that began with the person of Jesus. And it was something his followers chose to embrace and chose to leverage and chose to engage in and recognize every person, women, children, man, artisan, politician, doesn't matter what the spectrum is, doesn't matter where they stand on the hierarchy, are worthy of dignity because if Jesus gave his life for them, God has already stated the case and sealed the fact that they're worthy of being treated with dignity. But it wasn't just dignity. It was humility. It was humility. You see, humility is something that I think we all value. We're not good at it. Very few of us are good at it. I'm terrible at humility. (laughs) But it's something I value deeply in other people. When we look at our bosses and our leaders and our friends, even our politicians who, you know, we joke about like kind of the sleaze or the slime that can be associated in these different things. What we value across the spectrum is humility. We cherish that in people. We want to know that there, there's someone who, in fact, we would say that humility is a really a noble characteristic, isn't it? We would say, it's, you know, that's a noble thing. Yet nobility in the ancient days wanted nothing to do with humility. There there was no such thing as humility for them. Again, this wasn't the case because in Jesus' day and age, it was about your title. It was about your role. It was about your position. It was about your influence. You see, humility wasn't a great virtue. Honor was the greatest virtue. It was about being the greatest. In fact, to call someone humble or to to say someone represented or depicted humility would be almost like using a derogatory word against them because only the poor people were humble. Only the poor people needed someone else's help. Only the poor people were willing to recognize their faults because the greats didn't have faults. The greats didn't have need for that. And, 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 and Jesus came and he flipped the script, didn't he? Jesus came and he said, things are going to change. Jesus came and he said, it's time to focus on something else because when Jesus came, he said this, among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. You see, when Jesus came... 
he flipped the paradigm of how we view greatness. Greatness wasn't about what you've achieved. Greatness never was about what you did, who you trampled over. Greatness wasn't about what you accomplished, what your resume says, how many transactions you closed, how many cases you won. Greatness was about your ability to serve other people. In fact, the scriptures say an interesting story in John chapter 13. It says, when Jesus knew his hour had come and that God the Father had given him all authority in the world, all authority, he got up, took off his outer garment, got down on his knees and began washing his disciples' feet. When Jesus was the most powerful person in the world, he chose to humble himself. You see, humility is something that we value. The humility, it's, it's why you love the boss who serves with the team. It's why you love the person who can own their wrongs. It's why you love the person who says, you know what? I messed up here. I got that wrong. It's why you dislike the person who says, oh, no, that was your fault, not mine, and threw you under the bus. Right? It's why you dislike it when someone says, oh, no, that's not mine, or that's not my responsibility, or I'm not going to do that. That's out of my pay grade, or that's out of my situation. That's not my role. That's not my title. It's why you dislike that situation, but on the flip side, you'll like someone who's humble enough to say, you know what? That may not be my title, but I'm willing to go there. I'm willing to do that. I can take time to help with that. You like this idea. You love this in other people because you recognize this actually came from who Jesus was and what Jesus did. Speaking of humility, speaking of serving, we'll kind of go to this third distinctive of charity. Charity. Now, charity, it's not a word that we use in our typical daily vernacular, but it's something, while we may not be able to define it exactly, it's something I think we all know what it feels like. We know what it feels like when someone speaks something kindly to us. We know what it feels like when someone does something nice to us, when someone does something nice for us, when someone does something out of their way to benefit us, when someone goes above and beyond to show love or grace or compassion in a way that's not normal or in a way that's not necessarily uh, expected or, or obligated or that they're obligated to, yet they choose to show this because that's what charity does. You see, charity, you've been on the receiving end of it. In your lowest moments, when someone sends you a message, text, voicemail, takes you out for a meal, says, hey, let's just hang out and chat. They don't have to fix it. They don't have to correct the problem. They just let you cry, weep, vent, be angry. They don't tell you you're wrong for that. They just say, I'm here for you. We know what that feels like. We know what it feels like to be sick and someone says, hey, can I just bring you like a meal? Can I bring you soup? Can I bring you something that, that would make you feel better? You know what it's like for your mom. You know what it's like to be vulnerable right after that baby is born and feel like I'm in over my head and someone just says, hey, can I do something for you? Can I come over? If you got other kids, let me watch the other kids. And they only do it once because your kids are bad, but they do it one time. And you're like, you know what? That meant the world to me. Like, I got to get someone else to do it another time. But you know what it feels like to experience charity. To be charitable is to be helpful to those who are vulnerable or weak or in a place of need. And yet the really ironic thing is that charity was not how people in Jesus' day interacted with one another. Even more so, charity was not required of or expected by from the gods. When you think about charity, when we think about this in the context of humanity, a lot of times, especially associated with religion, we think about charity being something God would want from us to be charitable to other people. 
Yet in Jesus' day, the gods, didn't, the gods demanded sacrifices. They didn't require charitable services. In fact, charity was so foreign in Jesus' day, there was a practice known as exposure. And exposure was simply this. If you had a child, again, bottom of the totem pole, you as a parent, particularly if it was a girl, a female child, if you did not want this child, you could expose that child by leaving them outside in a part of the city or a part of the region. This is very common in the Roman Empire. You could leave them out for up to seven days. And if the child survived, then it was clear that God wanted you to have this child. But if the child did not survive, then it was clear that God did not want this child to be part of your family. Now, the real kicker was this. There was zero accountability. So no one ever came to verify, hey, it's been seven days. That baby's still alive. You got to come get him. See, this was exposure. This was normal in Jesus' day. This was common. This was very practical speaking from, from that society because this was their way of ensuring that they were guaranteeing they were moving up some sort of social hierarchy. Charity was not the rule of the day, but it was Jesus' followers in the first, second, and third centuries who found it within themselves to see these kids needed to be loved. These children needed to be orphaned. They needed to be welcomed into family. In fact, Jesus' followers would go to these places in these different cities and adopt and receive these kids and take them from hand, from hands of parents and embrace them and receive them as their own because they knew what it was like to receive charity from God when you've been welcomed into the family of God, when you've been received by God to know the love that you experience, the grace that you have, as we sang about the grace that you don't deserve, but the grace that you receive regardless. We know what it's like to feel that in our lives. And it was the followers of Jesus who said, if we receive this from God, then we can show this to others. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter where they've been. It doesn't matter what, what they've done or what they've not done in the case of an infant. We can love them. We can serve them. But it went beyond infants, you see, because the first institution that we would recognize as a hospital was invented in the late third century, excuse me, the, four, the late fourth century by a church father named Gregory of Nyssa. And Gregory of Nyssa recognized that there were lepers who were being sent away. See, if you were sick, you were sent away so that you didn't contaminate other people. But Gregory decided, you know what, we as a church can do something about this. And we can not just send them away, but we can go with them and we can care for them and bring them to health. Why would people do this? Why would people risk their own health? to care for others? Why would people burden themselves by receiving a child? Why would they acknowledge or do things that were so kind of outlandish and so countercultural in a world and a society that didn't expect it, that didn't require it, nor did it increase your status or your stature? Why? Because of what Jesus said. For I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. You see, the charity that Jesus showed, the charity that Jesus demonstrated was the charity that his followers embraced and lived out. And it's the charity that you and I have been beneficiaries of 2,000 years after the fact. It's why we feel good when we serve others. It's why we feel good when we do acts out of love. It's why we care when someone is hurting, when someone is broken, and when someone is in need. My fourth and final distinctive, maybe my favorite of them all, is this idea of community. Community. It's my favorite because in a world where people were separated by hierarchy, socioeconomic status, race and ethnicity, gender, jobs, education, Jesus somehow managed to bring everyone together. 
If you look at the gospel accounts and you read and you take note of the names that are mentioned, the people where they came from, it was people from different walks of life, people from different backgrounds, people from different regions, people from different social statuses, people from different genders, ethnicities. He brought them all together. In fact, Andy Stanley, the pastor of a church in Atlanta, Georgia, says people who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. People who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. And they didn't just like Jesus, they followed Jesus. Jesus had this way in a world that was divided, in a world that was built on this construct of us versus them. Jesus didn't see things that way. You see, because from Jesus' perspective, it wasn't us versus them. It was perfect and not perfect. There was no smart and dumb, rich or poor, male or female, you know, wealthy and known to unknown and humble, healed and, and or, you know, healthy and, 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 and sick. There wasn't any of that. You see, in Jesus' in Jesus' world, in Jesus' mindset, there was simply this, holy and sinful, which in that world and from that vantage point puts all of humanity on one side together, the wrong side. Yet herein lies the good news. Because Jesus was determined to make the wrong side his side. Jesus was determined to step into this world and choose to be with us, choose to engage in humanity, choose to engage with people who were broken, people from different backgrounds, and say, I'm here for you, I'm here with you, and I'm here for you. And Jesus stepped into this world, and we know the verse, right? Jesus speaking this about himself says this, for this is how God loved what? The world. That he gave his one and only son. So that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. You see, this idea of community wasn't just for a select group. This idea of community wasn't just for a specific type of ethnicity or background. This idea of community was for everyone. The world is all people. And Jesus said, yeah, that person or that society or that government or that situation or that region might be for that one person or for that one people, but we are for all people. I am here for everyone, not just today in this moment, but for all time. I am here for all and everyone for the entire world, and I'm going to do my part to bring everyone together. It's why a person like me can stand in a room like this and speak to a person like you, regardless of your background, regardless of where you were born, regardless of your birthplace, because in Jesus, we find our love. In Jesus, we find our identity. In Jesus, we find our wholeness. In Jesus, we are brought together in community, and that didn't exist before Jesus. That didn't exist until Jesus, but thank God it existed because of Jesus. This is what we were brought to. See, these four things, these four distinctives, dignity, humility, charity, community, this is the new that Jesus established. This was just part of the new that Jesus offered. This was just part of the better he provides. And and in the early days, immediately following Jesus' resurrection, his followers would take hold of these four things and others, but these four things... And they would flip the world upside down. They would turn it on its head. So much so that 2,000 years later, it's the religious, the non-religious, the a-religious, and even the anti-religious who would all agree these four things matter. People who have no clue that it originated with Jesus. People who would want nothing to do with Jesus want everything to do with this. This is how the world was changed. And you know what's crazy about all of this? Is that it didn't take much for the world to change. It didn't take much for this to become the norm. 
All it took was a small group of followers who were crazy enough and committed enough to embrace the new that Jesus offered for them. To say, you know what, I'm in on that. I'm going to pursue that with my life. I'm going to pursue that with my heart. I'm going to yield to that and say, Jesus, you're my Lord. And so because you're my Lord, I'm going to embrace these things. I'm going to become them. I'm going to live them. And I'm going to empower others with them as well. And 2,000 years later, we live in a better world because of this. More specifically, because of Jesus. Which begs the question, what if? What if? What if a group of Christians, a group of Jesus followers today would embrace the new that Jesus offered? What if they would live into these things? What if they would embody these things? What if they would become these things? And what if they would demonstrate these things in any and every situation they find themselves in, regardless of the person on the other end, regardless of the recipient, regardless of what's been done, regardless of what's happened, and just say, you know what? This is the way of Jesus. This is the new Jesus offered for me. I'm a beneficiary of it, and I believe you can be a beneficiary of it too. And here's what would happen. I'll tell you what would happen. If we embrace these things, if we did these things, we would revolutionize not just this world, but the world for generations and millennia to come. Not just because it's metabolic, but because, listen, in Jesus' day, it's all it took was a room about this size. So if they did it then, if they did it then without technology, without, you know, transportation, without the resources and the means that we have in this room today, what would the story be a thousand years from now, 2,000 years from now? Not just because of meta, but because of like-minded people who say, you know what, the way of Jesus offer something so much new, so much better than the old way. But here's the catch. It starts with us, with one person. More specifically, it starts with you. It starts within you, then it moves from you to your building or your block, your neighborhood, your borough, your city. That's how we change this thing. That's how we transform the world. And if we can change that within us, then we can change the city. And if we can change the city, we can change the world. This is the new Jesus has for you. Let me close this in a word of prayer. Hey, thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We hope it encourages you in your faith and blesses you throughout the week. If you'd like to find out more about Meta Church, you can find us online at meta.church. And we hope to see you again next week on the podcast.